We are in a section that began a couple of weeks ago in which we learned that we are to welcome believers into our midst who have different religious convictions from our own. Romans 14.1 said, For as the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So we are to welcome people with different religious convictions, but to do so in such a way that we're not fighting and arguing about those differences. Last week, we noted that though one might think that those religious differences don't matter, they matter very much. And we discovered that everyone is to be fully persuaded in their own mind as to what uh, convictions they should have. So it's very important that we have in our own minds a clearly defined understanding of what the Word of God teaches and demands of us in our living out of our faith. So how do you hold on to those personal religious convictions with full fidelity, faithfulness to those convictions, and at the same time have harmony and peace in the church with people who don't share those same convictions. Well, the key verse for this morning is Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Instead of judging one another, conversely, we should consciously, with a great deal of intentionality, chase after that which produces peace and spiritual development in the life of the church. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another brother. Then verse 19. So then let us pursue or, or chase after, run down, as it were, peace and mutual building. That imagery teaches us that it's not easy. That it is a lifelong pursuit in order to maintain this peace and mutual building up in the body of Christ. But that is what we are called to do. So the obvious question is how? How are we to chase after that which produces peace and spiritual health and progress in the life of the church? Well, first of all, we are to chase after that which produces peace and spiritual health in the life of the church by making a conscious decision, a conscious resolve, not to be a source of spiritual detriment or harm to one another. To make a conscious decision not to be a source of spiritual detriment or harm to one another. This comes from verse 13. And in verse 13, there is a play on words. We are not to pass judgment on others, but rather we are to pass judgment on ourselves. If you look at verse 13, 
It there says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide. That word that's translated into English as decide is the same word that's found in the first half of that verse that speaks about judgment. So we learn that we are to take a critical view of our own actions. We are to pass judgment not on others but ourselves. To have a critical view of our own actions. Asking ourselves if what we are doing is spiritually helpful or harmful to others. To ask ourselves if what we are doing, the way that we are conducting ourselves, is spiritually helpful or harmful to others. The spiritual harm that we can do to others is depicted in two ways. First, is that it's possible to become a stumbling block. If you look at verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. A stumbling block. A stumbling block is that which causes a person to trip or stumble. So we are not to do anything that will trip someone else up. It is a metaphor that depicts causing a person to fall into sin. We shouldn't do anything that causes someone else to fall into a sinful act. In this case, it would be to cause someone to violate their conscience and do what they think should not be done. In the context, it's acting in such a way that we're putting before someone else this temptation to be eating meat when they think they should not be eating meat. Paul is convinced that no food is intrinsically morally corrupting in and of itself. You look at verse 13, 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, taken by its own merits. If all you do is thinking about this meat, well, there is no meat that you can eat that is going to morally corrupt you or cause you to be defiled or unclean. There is no meat that we cannot eat, he says, in the Lord, in the Lord. He is convinced of this because of his relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse 14, I'm persuaded in the Lord that in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has put an end to all of the, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. All the dietary laws are, are, are not any longer demanding or applicable to the child of God. And so, in relationship to Jesus Christ, now nothing is outside of the bounds of what a Christian can eat. And then secondly, he is convinced because of what Jesus himself taught, namely that food does not corrupt a person or make them unclean. Now listen to the words of Jesus. In Mark chapter seven, verse 14, it says, and he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, 
Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. End quote. So Jesus specifically said, Every food is clean. There is nothing that you can eat that is going to defile you. So Paul says, I am fully persuaded in Jesus that I can eat anything that I want to eat. However, Paul also teaches that that very same food, which is acceptable to eat, can in certain situations become unacceptable. To eat. One such situation is given to us at the end of verse 14. So if you look at verse 14 again, it says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in, is unclean in and of itself. There is no category of unclean food. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks that it's unclean. There's nothing in and of itself that's unclean, but if a person has a conviction that there is a food that they should not eat, and if they eat that food, it is sinful, then for them it's sinful to eat it. If the person eats when he doesn't think that he should, then he's committing a sin. Look at verse 23, which is the concluding thought in that particular realm. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if this person is under the impression that he would be committing a sin if he eats this food, then for him it's a sin. And he should not eat it. Therefore, Paul says that he should not be placing a person in a situation where he is contributing to their sinful behavior by causing them to violate their conscience and eat what they think that they should not eat. In this instance, the encouragement comes from his actions. In other words, if Paul is sitting there with a heart of faith and full confidence that there's nothing wrong in eating this meat, and so he sits there and eats, and right next to them is a weaker brother who is not as instructed in the Word of God, who doesn't have the same understanding that Paul does, sees Paul eat and says, well, if Paul's eating, I guess it's okay, and then eats, but in reality still has doubts, still has uncertainty, and afterwards his conscience is violated, and he says, you know, I never should have eaten that. That's wrong to eat. Paul says... We should not put a stumbling block in front of that other individual. I'll say more about that later on. A closely related idea is that we're not to be a negative influence 
and deterring a person from following the will of God. Back to verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block, which we just looked at, and now this word, or hindrance, in the way of a brother. So how does a stumbling block differ from a hindrance? A hindrance is a negative influence in deterring a person from following the will of God. The uh, stumbling block has more to do with action. The uh, hindrance has more to do with teaching. Let me give you an example. Jesus had made a resolve that he was going to be going to Jerusalem to offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. And he teaches his disciples that truth. In Matthew 16, 21, he says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But Peter tried to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. Verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter was well-intentioned. Peter was wanting what Peter thought was best for Jesus. He didn't want to see Jesus suffer. He didn't want to see Jesus die. So he said in private, Jesus... Be that far from you. Don't do that. Jesus responds. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. It's the same word that's found in our text. Peter, you are hindering me. You are trying to influence me to violate the will of God. God wants me to go to Jerusalem he wants me to suffer. He wants me to die. Don't try to convince me to go against the will of God. So in our text, the will of God as being ascertained by this weaker brother is that he should not eat this meat. Now remember, everyone is to be fully persuaded in their own mind. It goes all the way back to Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So everyone must present their bodies as a living sacrifice to God, saying, take my body, use it as you would. And everyone has to know what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. So here is a brother who decides that the will of God is for him not to eat, that that's the way he's used to use his body, to refrain from eating this meat. Then the exhortation is don't be a hindrance to them. Don't try to dissuade them from doing what they believe is the will of God. Don't hinder them from following their conviction. Application, thus we are not to discourage people from following 
their heart, their belief in what is accomplishing the will of God. We are seeking to be a help to our brother and sister in Christ, not a harm to them. Notice verse 15. For if you, your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Love seeks to help. Love seeks to encourage. Love seeks to build up. So if you are not being helpful to this brother or sister, then you aren't really showing them love. You are not helping them. You are hurting them, even if your intention is not to do so. It goes on to say, verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. A beautiful word picture here. For if you look at verse 19, it says, So then let us purpose what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Here's the word picture. As Christians, we are to be building each other up, just like a building, all right? You're, you are to be adding brick upon brick, stone upon stone, mortar, etc., making this a building that is <clears throat> strong, that is firm, that is going to, to last, all right? So it says in verse 15, you're not to destroy, all right? You're not to start dismantling this building, you're not trying to start ripping it down. You are trying to build faith, not undermine faith. You are trying to encourage, not to discourage. You want people to do the will of God. You don't want them to violate the will of God. So you don't want to destroy them. You don't want to undermine them. You don't want them to run amok, as it were. So then secondly, how are we to chase after that which produces peace and spiritual development in the life of the church by seeking to live in such a way that there is peace and mutual growth in the church for the furtherance of the kingdom? We do this by making sure that our decisions do not shed a negative light on God's grace. Look, look at verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be evil, but be spoken of as evil. The first thing I want you to notice is the object in verse 16. I want you to notice what it doesn't say, because a lot of times people jump to the wrong conclusion here. It does not say this. So do not let yourself be evil spoken of. You see that? It doesn't say that. Don't let yourself be evil spoken of. What it says is, do not let what you regard as good be evil spoken of. That which is regarded as good is not eating meat. What is being regarded as good is ultimately the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the freedom of God. It is wonderful that we don't live under the obligations of the Old Testament law. That's a great thing. And we should rejoice in God's grace. 
And the last thing we want to do as a Christian is cause God's grace to be understood as a negative. That is anything other than good. Let me give you an example of how this can happen. In Psalm chapter, in Psalm 4, David is offering a prayer unto God. In Psalm 4, David says, Hear me, O God, when I call unto thee, the God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. David says, have mercy, have pity upon me. Hear and answer my prayer. God says in response, O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after falsehood? God says to David, David, how long are you going to turn my glory, and in the context of glory is God's ability to forgive, God's ability to show mercy. God was gracious to David. God was merciful to David. God was a God who forgave all of David's sin. And he says to David, how long are you going to turn my glory into shame? How long are you going to make me look like a bad God? A God who doesn't care about justice. A God who doesn't care about holiness. A God who doesn't care about righteousness. David, the way you are living your life can give people the wrong impression. For I am constantly showing you mercy and you're constantly disobeying me. So that when Nathan, the prophet, comes to David, as David had committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband Uriah murdered, Nathan says unto David, Today thou hast given occasion in Israel to blaspheme. Today, David, you gave reason for people in Israel to speak bad of God. David, what you did reflected negatively on who God is and our responsibility before him. So in this context, it's saying, don't let your freedom be evil spoken of. Don't let this grace of God that has been granted turn God into something other than he isn't, namely a loving, gracious, holy God. Be careful in the way in which God is seen as a result of our actions. Now, we will uh, unpack that a little bit here. For notice what it says. Understand the realities of what constitutes the kingdom of God. What makes it unique? What makes the kingdom of God so glorious? What are the really important things in the Christian life? Notice verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not, is not, circle not, is not a matter of eating and drinking. That's not what the kingdom's about. That's not what is central to the teaching of God's word. That is not central to our relationship to God. It's not about drinking or eating. Righteousness is not to be founded on the basis of whether we eat or drink. 
but on the basis of faith in Christ. Look at verse 17 and note the contrast between eating and drinking and righteousness. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but, okay, it's not about eating and drinking. What's it about? But of righteousness. Therefore, (laughs) eating and drinking has nothing to do with the righteousness of the kingdom. That's not what makes a person righteous. Whether eating or drinking, righteousness is based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness is, is based on this right relationship to him. And it is true righteousness that we ought to be concerned about. Not eating and drinking. That's a superfluous issue. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's what we're to be hungry and thirsting after. As the deer pants after the water brook, so does my heart panteth after thee, O God. All right? That's what it's all about. It's seeking God and living for him. That's what righteousness is. Next, we're to understand that peace is central to the kingdom of God. Notice again verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and secondly, peace. Peace is what is going to typify God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, that which formerly was in opposition to each other, that which was an enmity to each other is reconciled. The enemies become friends. They are reconciled in God's kingdom. The lion lays down with the lamb. They will beat their swords into plowshares. It will be a kingdom of peace. Therefore, in the church, peace must be supreme because that's what the kingdom's about. The gospel is about bringing people together. The gospel is about reconciliation. The gospel is about healing marriages. Husbands and wives that can't get along now are to get along. It's about healing relationships with parents and children. He will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. It's about healing race relationships. It's about healing relationships between servants and masters. It's about healing relationships of all kind so that people can come together and be at peace with one another. That's why this matters. And that's why we shouldn't be eating, arguing over eating meat or not eating meat. There's a much more fundamental truth. And that is, as God's people, we enjoy the peace of reconciliation, of God bringing people together from every tongue and tribe and people and nation with different cultures and backgrounds and causing them together to have joy, which is the third in this verse. Joy in the Holy Spirit, delighting in coming together. Uh, That when we come together as a people of God, it should be pleasurable 
I don't know about you, but have you ever hated to go to work? Ever hated to go to school? Sometimes it's because of who you're with. Sometimes it's because of the atmosphere. You know, you go and you know you're going to get put down. You know it's going to be filled with strife. It's going to be filled with tension. And you dread it. You dread certain social settings. Sometimes you even dread when the family comes together because of issues that are tearing families apart. And all the joy is just sucked out of it. And it becomes this painful, hard experience. When we come to church, it ought to be joyous. We ought to look forward to seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ. We shouldn't dread coming into their presence. We shouldn't treat by trying to duck one another. <laughs> we, we shouldn't feel uncomfortable, unwelcomed by one another. We're to be a people of peace. For that is what the kingdom is about. Serving God by chasing peace and spiritual welfare of others results in acceptance. Notice verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ in this way, serving Christ not about by what you eat or drink, but by serving Christ in true righteousness and true peace and true joy, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. This is pleasing to God. Verse 18, acceptable. Uh, good synonym there is pleasing. That which pleases God. You know, what both groups are trying to do is please God. They can't agree on what is pleasing to God, whether it's eating meat or not eating meat. And they're bickering over which is pleasing to God. You want to know what pleasing to God is? Living in peace. You know, I don't know what pleasing to God is. True righteousness, not man-made righteousness. But what God teaches is right and holy and just and good. That's what pleases God. Joy when the people of God come together. That's what pleases God. And this also gains the respect of others. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That word for approved means to gain respect. To gain respect. It's the total opposite of judging one another, of putting one another down, of looking down our nose at other people. But we learn to respect one another, appreciate one another, their faith, their commitment, their love for God. We admire them. That's the goal of our Christian life, to look at one another with appreciation for their love and their for commitment to Christ, thankful for them, pray for them in their workplace, in the family, that they remain strong and faithful, not waver in their commitment to Jesus. So then quickly, here are the concluding applications. And they just kind of like rapid gunfire come off there's five of them. 
And I uh, can't exegete them in great detail. But notice the concluding applications. First, we must guard against being a negative influence to others. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let's chase after that. Let's work hard for that. Let's that be our goal. Let's that be about what we're about. Let's work to that end. Pursuing peace and mutual upbuilding, mutual encouragement, mutual edification. First, we must guard against being a negative influence to others. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Now it moves to a community. The first was do not destroy your brother. Now it's don't destroy the work of God. Don't blow up the church <laughs> over this. Churches divide. Churches fight. Churches struggle over the dumbest things that don't matter. The color of the carpet. The time of the service. Whether Sunday school comes before church or after church, or whether you have a Sunday school or not. I can't tell you all the dumb things that I've gotten involved with in life in the responsibility I had of going to different churches and trying to keep peace. And I'd scratch my head sometimes and just think, where in the world are people coming from? <laughs> it doesn't matter. So many times, churches are splitting over things that just don't matter. What matters is the truth of the gospel. What matters is the word of God. What matters is, is peace and righteousness and joy and the mutual testimony that we have as a people of God to be a lighthouse. And it should trump all the little insignificant issues that people fight about. Whether it be music or whatever. B, it is bad to make others stumble by what we do. Verse 20. Do not forsake, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So, yes, it's true that as a Christian, you can eat anything, but you can eat in such a way that you can be a really spiritual detriment to someone else. That becomes wrong. That becomes wrong for the person who is eating with a good conscience. It's wrong for them now because they haven't taken into a, a consideration their weaker brother. They've been only thinking about themselves. They haven't been thinking about others. Positively stated, it is right to refrain from what could cause others to stumble. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. To decide that you're not going to exercise your freedom. 
Fourthly, to refrain from eating when we think that there is nothing wrong with eating is not a violation of our conscience. That's very important here because we're talking about consciences. We're talking about being fully persuaded. So if a person is fully persuaded there's nothing wrong with eating and they decide that they're not going to eat and they violated their conscience. Have they done something that is wrong? Do they have the responsibility to then just push ahead and eat? The answer is no. Verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Keep that conviction. Keep that assurance. That's good. That's right. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. All right? So, yeah, hold on to that. But there's nothing wrong at the same time deciding not to eat. E, the person who violates their conscience in eating when they think that they should not eat is guilty of sin. Verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not proceed from faith is a sin. Then the conclusion is, verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us do what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let me give you two examples from my own life of how this can be fleshed out. As many of you know, for, there was a period of time when I was an assistant pastor at the Reading Bible Fellowship Church. And the Reading Bible Fellowship Church had some understandings of what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. And a lot of them had to do with behaviors on Sunday, things they didn't think you ought to be doing on a, on a Sunday. And one of them was they didn't want the youth group playing football on Sunday. They didn't see anything wrong with, with football. You could play other days, but you couldn't play football on, on a Sunday. That's just the way it was, and I won't get into all the reasons why, whatever. But you couldn't play football on Sunday. <clears throat> I came here. The first Sunday that I was here was a fellowship Sunday. We had our noon meal. Uh, at that time, there was a discussion afterwards. And then there was going to be a football game with the youth. And one of the elders came up to me and said, are you going to be playing football with the youth? I didn't know if this was a test or uh, to see how committed I really was or, or what. And uh, so uh, I didn't answer. I said, are you playing? And he said, yeah, I'm going to play. I said, okay, I'll play. And I went home, and I was changing into my blue jeans. And my wife said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm putting on some jeans. We're going to go out and play some football with the kids. And she said, you hypocrite. I said, I'm not a hypocrite. It was wrong there. It's not wrong here. You know, we, we went with what was the understanding of what was appropriate and inappropriate. There's nothing in itself wrong. You don't have to go against the conscience of another person. You can live without playing football on a Sunday afternoon. 
And for those that see nothing wrong with it, there is nothing wrong with it. And you can go out and play football on a Sunday afternoon and have a great deal of joy. Illustration number two. After I, I came to the, uh, the church here, shortly thereafter, I decided I was going to grow a full beard. I used to have a, a full, big beard. I've since trimmed down a little bit, but I decided I was going to grow this big, full beard. And some of you might not realize, but years ago, that used to be an issue with some people. Some people viewed uh, a beard as being uh, rebellious, uh, associated with a certain class of people, etc. Well, to make a long story short, in some places, you couldn't have a beard. In fact, well, I won't go there. So, you couldn't have a beard. I decided I wanted to grow a beard. So I announced one Sunday morning from the pulpit, I just said, I plan on growing a beard. And if anybody has a problem with that, you let me know and I won't do it. But uh, that's my intention. I'm going to grow a beard. But if you have a problem with me, let me know. I won't do it. Right after the, the service, someone came up to me and said, Pastor, you know, I always thought a pastor shouldn't have beards. And he said, if you wouldn't have said that, he said, I've been really upset with you. But he said, how can you be upset with somebody who says, if it's important to you, I won't do it. He said, pastor, if you want to grow a beard, grow a beard. Peace. Acceptance. Understanding what's important and what isn't. Receive one another in a way in which you don't violate one another's conscience. And at the same time that you're growing, that you're still addressing these issues. Paul makes it clear in the text, there's nothing wrong with eating. But he's going to conduct himself in such a way that other people can swallow it. It's a lot easier to take it from someone when he says there's nothing wrong from eating meat, but I'm not going to eat it if it's going to bother you. That gives him a hearing. That gives him an appreciation. That person says he loves me, he cares about me, he's concerned about me. And that person is willing to listen. And they grow. And maybe they will come to that same conclusion over a period of time that there's nothing wrong with eating the meat. And they've been built up and not destroyed. Their faith will have been strengthened and not undermined. Their conscience will be clear and not defiled. Let's be careful in the way in which we interact with each other. Pursuing peace. Chasing after peace. And chasing after building each other up. And making each other more spiritually strong. What is true spiritual strength? Not false spiritual strength, but true spiritual strength. That which is in keeping with the word of God. Let us strive, run after, chase after peace and a mutual upbuilding 
of the body of Christ to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of the church and the glory of people speaking well of God and not ill. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us. Give us a spirit of graciousness in our interactions with one another. Lord, in our pursuit of our Christian liberty, may we be mindful of weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. May weaker brothers and sisters of Christ be open and willing to acknowledge the help and strength that they gain from their brothers and sisters of Christ that, that don't share the necessarily the same convictions. Oh Lord, give us an ability to understand what true righteousness consists of. Free us from man-made standards. And Lord, may we see righteousness as faith in Christ and obedience to his word. Not the rules and regulations that people pass upon us, but what the word establishes, the word in truth. Not the misapplication of the word, but the faithful, true, diligently studied and right application of the word. Lord, give us peace among each other. May we strive after that peace so that that which is good is not evil spoken of, so that the church is not evilly spoken of, so that ultimately Christ is not even evilly spoken of, but we would rejoice in the grace of Christ. Lord, build us up in our faith. Cause us to be strong in our love for you. Help us to hunger and thirst, not after our stomachs, but after true righteousness, the kingdom of God. And we look forward to that day in which we are going to be in your presence. And may we live our life more and more on this earth as though we were in your presence and in that kingdom. May we adopt kingdom values for our present day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.